Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 37, 1 through 11, and 19 through 34. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding, binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisters and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, will we, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. One of the... Uh, 
misunderstandings I think that people often have about the Bible is that we are supposed to read the Bible and discover lessons from the various characters in the Bible, and that should then be kind of our roadmap for life, right, following along with the characters. But one of the things you very quickly begin to realize when you uh, approach the scriptures uh, is that everybody in the Bible is an absolute mess. Uh, For the last 16 weeks or so, we've been in this series called In the Beginning, looking at uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, And we have time and time again looked at a lot of people and events that have uh, absolutely lacked any significant virtue. No character thus far in in the story of Genesis has been a person of virtue. They've all been deeply flawed, deeply broken, and even at times deeply wicked. And what I find to be interesting is that today is absolutely no difference in the narrative that we just heard read. Today, uh, what we're going to be doing is taking a look uh, at a new generation of those carrying on the promise that God had made to Abraham uh, to create this great line, this great nation, a nation that would uh, bless the world over the last 10 weeks or so uh, of our series. We've looked at uh, Abraham, uh, then we looked at his son Isaac, uh, and then we looked at Isaac's son Joseph, or Jacob rather, and today we begin shifting uh, away from Jacob and now taking a look at uh, the person that will um, end up uh, being focused on for most of the rest of Genesis, the son named Joseph. This story uh, is another reminder of how God in his mercy works through very broken people doing very wicked things And he does so not because of them, but rather despite them. Seeing God work in this way is actually incredibly instructive for all of us as we consider how God may be uh, continuing to accomplish his plan of redemption today, even in our lives. And one of the things that we're going to see, I'll put it on the front end of this now, is that God always redeems those who, uh, not those who believe themselves to be strong, but rather redeems those who recognize their weakness. In order to understand how God works, we must understand how God works in the midst of weakness. And so, with that said, let's consider a few things from the story. First, we're going to consider the complexities of sinful weakness. We're going to take a look at God working in the midst of that weakness, and then finally, God redeeming through weakness. All right, so first, the complexities of sinful weakness. Uh, If you were here with us last week, Something that we said is that sin always creates complication. Uh, Sin, it breaks down relationships, uh, it clouds our thinking, proper thinking, and often leaves us in a place of a lot of uncertainty about what might lie ahead in our lives. Our inability to keep from sinning often creates massive complications in life. Now, before we go any further, I do want to just pause for a second and try to define What we mean by sin, Uh, it's a word that we, of course, use often, uh, but we may not have a full understanding of what sin is or what it includes. And while there's many, many different ways uh, to unpack the nature of sin, um, because we're Presbyterians, uh, I'm going to draw on the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, and give you the definition of how the catechism defines sin. Uh, If you know the catechism, it's a question and answer discipleship tool. Uh, And question 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is sin? Any good Presbyterians? Lunch on me if you can can recite back the answer. Anybody got it? Didn't think so. Okay, it's fine. Uh, 
what is sin? The answer is that sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is our rejection of what God desires. It's our rejection of his commands, his purposes for us. It's a rejection of his law. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the law of God, but Jesus actually gives us a very simple and yet profound summary of the law. And so while there's a lot that we could say about all the 600 plus laws in the Bible, Jesus summarizes the entire law in Matthew 22, famously. He puts it this way. All the law can be summarized in this. That love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right? So love God and love others. The entire law can be summarized with those two things. Now, when we fail to love God with our whole being, recognizing that he is the supreme creator and ruler of all things, when we fail to see him in that way, we're in sin. When we fail to love others, but instead prioritize ourselves, often to the detriment of others, we're in sin. And now I, I start here because so much of what we've seen already in the book of Genesis, in the narrative, has been people who refuse to love God with their whole being, and instead they search for a whole host of things, trying to fill that which only God can fulfill in their lives. And in doing so, they do not love others, but rather use others for their own selfish pursuits. That is the case for them, but realistically... That's also very much the case for all of us as well. I mean, this is very central to who we are. We do the same thing. When God is not supreme in our lives, we will make something else our God. When we do not love others the way that we should, we will use them. We will lie to them. We will take from them. And as a result, it wreaks havoc in our lives or in the lives of those that are around us. We have seen this over and over again, all throughout the narrative. All right, consider what we've just looked at in the story that Hannah just read us. First, we need to start by addressing just how selfish Jacob continues to be. Jacob, the, the son of Isaac, the one that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. He was selfish, if you remember. He was selfish uh, as a son and as a brother when he deceived Isaac and Esau. He was selfish as a husband uh, in his marriage to Leah and to Rachel. And now he is selfish as a father to all of his sons. Look at verse 3. It says, now Israel, uh, that's Jacob. Now Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. What's happening there? Well, we have seen the impact of Joseph. I'm sorry, Jacob, desperately seeking a sense of validation. And in particular, it's been a validation that he longed for from his father. In many ways, Isaac, right, Jacob's father, favored Jacob's brother, Esau, which is very much where so much of Jacob's trauma is rooted. And we have seen the effects of that over and over again. And now you have Jacob privileging Joseph who was the son of his favorite wife, which is a whole mess unto itself, Jacob has now, ironically, created an environment fraught with the same broken dynamics that he himself had experienced in his own life. 
He is privileging one son because he is still thinking about himself, not loving others well. Now, this is a, a little bit of a side note, but the Bible is brutally honest about human nature and the effects of sin and the complexities that sin produces in our lives. And here's one of the things that we can uh, draw from this story alone, from Jacob's experience. What we see here is that we are very much products of our environment, meaning our sin is often connected to the sins of others, and our sin then can sometimes become the basis for the sins of other people. What I mean by that is what you see here is Isaac's poor fathering created Jacob's deep need for validation. Jacob's deep need for validation led to a life of lies and deceit, now producing the soil for a new generation of brokenness in this family. And so it's interesting that in one sense, every single one of us, we have to say, is responsible for our own actions. And we need to take responsibility for that which we do. But in another sense, it's also true that the poisoned soil in which we are often planted can lead to produce poisoned fruit. And now what we have is we're seeing that come to fruition in Jacob's children. And here's one of the things I want to just quickly say about that dynamic, is that some of us are too quick to deny one or the other reality. So some of us might be too quick, and we might say, you are solely responsible for your actions. There's no excuse, and there's no more discussion. But another of us might be too quick to say, oh, I made bad choices because someone else made bad choices that impacted me. But the reality is, is that both of those things can be true at the same time. It can be true that the bad decisions that we make, the sin that we may fall into, is connected to the sins of others. Yes, that might be true. But at the same time, we're also responsible for our actions and the ways in which we fail to live in the way that God desires us. And if we don't hold those two things in tension, we begin to miss how sin works and how pervasive sin can be. And look what it's done. Look what it's created in this family that we just read about. The poisoned soil that Jacob laid produces a spoiled son with zero empathy or compassion and also has created murderously angry sons willing to do unspeakable things. I mean, consider first that, that spoiled and strikingly arrogant son, Joseph. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. It says, He brought uh, to their father. So he's talking about his brothers. Uh, he's with his brothers, and he brings to their father a bad report about his brothers. Now, there's some debate about what exactly is happening there, what it means that Joseph brought uh, a bad report against his stepbrothers. But a bad report almost certainly means that he lied about them, uh, or he maybe just went and tattletailed on them. But either way, it seems that he's trying to get them in trouble. And the reason being, he wants to be viewed as the good son, and so he's treating them as the bad sons. And we can assume that that's his motive because of what we see next. In verse 3, it says, now Israel, again, that's Jacob. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. In other words, Jacob lavishes Joseph with expensive gifts like this robe because he's a favorite son, and this favoritism creates a deep hatred in his brothers and very real arrogance in Joseph. 
And here's where we can see the arrogance. In verses 5 through 11, in essence, Joseph, he has this dream uh, that one day he's going to rule over his brothers. Now, he has this dream, and his very first instinct is to go and tell his brothers this. And they get angry, right? Their spoiled brat, little brother, claimed now that he will rule over them one day. And as a result, their hatred grows. And we're told in the course of those verses three different times that they hate Joseph. And just as a side note, this is not some passive hatred. You know, in in Hebrew literature, whenever you see repetition, that repetition is to be noted. And we are told over and over again, three different times in this short passage, how much they hate him, which means that hatred ran deep so deep that Joseph would have absolutely known how much they despised him. I mean, it says that they could not even speak a kind word to him. And this is why Joseph actually seems like he's on a very destructive path. He knows how much they hate him. They know, he knows the reasons why they hate him, and yet he keeps on provoking them. Even though this this hatred is palpable, he's completely unconcerned with their feelings because he's too captivated by him, by with himself. Because again, he has another dream. But in this dream, the sun and the moon, they're they're bowing down to him. And this time, again, his first instinct is not only to tell his brothers, but now he goes and tells his father the same thing. And this is so jarring to everyone, so arrogant, that in verse 10, Jacob, the father, rebukes Joseph, his favorite son, for such audacious claims. Here's the bottom line. Everyone in this story has forgotten some very key important things. Everyone in this story has forgotten about a gracious God who has mercifully stayed committed to his covenant by blessing this family for generations. And everyone in this story is self-centered, caring more about themselves than the good of others. Fundamentally, they are rejecting the law of God. They have not kept him central, and now they are not loving others well. Now that's, again, the case for this family But again, it's also so often the case for us. When we forget the gracious love of God, we seek other things. We are self-centered. We care more about ourselves than others, and it creates complications. But despite that sinful weakness, God still remains faithful to this family. And that's important for us to recognize because just as he was faithful to them in the midst of their sin— God also remains faithful to us and actually works in the midst of our weakness if we are willing to see him at work. Let's look at that. Uh, Something that we can't miss um, that we'll consider more fully in the coming weeks, but in the midst of this brokenness, this really broken, sinful family, God is, again, working. If you know the story of Joseph, you know that his dreams were actually pointing to some truth, right? He wasn't lying about the dreams that he had. He will eventually, if you know his story, be placed in a position of power uh, to the point where one day his brothers and his father will eventually bow to him. Right? These were prophetic dreams about Joseph saving his family and his entire people. But also, you might know, before that actually happens, Joseph ends up on a very painful journey. We'll take a look at some of that journey in the next couple of weeks. That journey, it starts here in our passage when his brothers decide that they hate him so much uh, that they are ready to brutalize 
and even kill him. In verses 23 and 24, uh, in, in, the, in uh, the Hebrew there, the word that's being used for um, violence is actually far more violent than our English word conveys here. They are violently stripping him of his robe. They are violently throwing him into a pit. Uh, later in verse 42, we find out that Joseph, he pleaded with them to let them out, but their hatred was so severe that it actually turned into this really jarring apathy toward their brother. Uh, verse 25, I find this interesting, an interesting little detail. After they throw him in, and you can imagine now the scene, Joseph, he's stripped naked, thrown into this pit. He's crying out for them to let, let him go. What does it say that they do? They sat down and ate lunch. Like they're so unconcerned about their brother. This hatred has run so deep, it's now become apathy. It's really vile stuff, the whole scene. Of course, eventually, some traders come along on their way to Egypt, and so the brothers devise a plan to sell Joseph to these enslavers. In order to keep their father from knowing what they've done, they kill a goat, they dip, jo uh, they dip Joseph's robe into that blood, and they tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a predator. And that news, as you can imagine, devastates Jacob. However, Right? With all that story in front of us. While we might look at this, and we might be rightly disgusted by all that's happening here, it's heartbreaking, God is still at work, even in the midst of these events. And he is at work in ways that would not be understood for many, many years. Right? This treatment of Joseph was how God would send Joseph to Egypt and provide Joseph the opportunity to one day interpret the dreams of Pharaoh thus gaining favor with Pharaoh, which then leads Joseph to become the prime minister of Egypt, which then gave him the power to save his family and his people from starvation during a famine, all of which leads to the eventual establishment of Israel as a nation, the nation from which the true blessing would come, that blessing being the Savior and restorer of the cosmos, the long-awaited Messiah. This is how God was working. And what's fascinating, and many have pointed this out, all throughout the story, God is nowhere mentioned. You never see God interacting with or intervening in anything here. Yet when we consider the entire narrative arc, God used the broken family dynamics created by Jacob, the arrogant and obnoxious proclamations of Joseph, and also the hate-filled impulses of his brothers to accomplish his grander purposes of redemption even when it seems like God is not present or at work, there is never a moment when God is not working. And part of what it means to have faith is that most of the time, we will not know what God is doing or how particular circumstances are going to lead to his broader purposes. It means, you know, think about the words of Jesus, right? These, the, the law the summary of the law that Jesus gives us. It means that we need to learn what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, even when you experience heartbreaking things in life. To love God with our whole soul is to love him even when the burdens and cares of life feel like they are weighing our very souls down. To love him with all our mind means to love him even when we cannot think of reasons that we want to love him. Because when we don't, 
we will seek something else to fill our hearts, uplift our souls, and enliven our minds, all of which will promise much but deliver nothing. But here's the tension, of course. Here's the rub. Is on the one hand, we can have confidence that, that God is at work. Right? We can keep him central, and we can always trust that he's at work, even in the midst of really tragic and, and sin-filled circumstances. But on the other hand, we might not ever know what he's actually accomplishing. And for many, holding those two things in tension is too much. As a pastor, I see this happen all the time. Either we abandon a belief in God because we can't think of a way that God is at work in the midst of really trying circumstances. Or there might be some who maintain a belief in God, trusting that he's working, but then desperately search for a reason that might end up being completely unknowable. And again, as a pastor, I sit with people experiencing both of those realities all the time. Either I reject God because he can't possibly be working, or I have faith in God, but I have to know what it, what it is that he's doing. And sometimes that's just not the case. But what's interesting to me, as I think about my own journey and even the journey that many of you have been on, is when we consider what it means to have faith in God and trust that he's working. You know, the, the measure of how strong our faith is is not often best assessed when times are good. It's very easy to trust that God's working when things are going well. The measure of our faith is really most, uh, it's best assessed when life is an absolute disaster, when everything seems to be going wrong and God seems to be absent. In those moments, do we really genuinely trust that he's at work and trust that even if we don't know what the answer is, why he's allowing certain things to happen, do we still trust that he's good and he's working through those painful circumstances? And I wonder, what would our faith journey look like? if we were able to have that kind of confidence in the work of God, even if we don't get any answers. Right? If we were that confident in God's continual presence, even when it seems like he's silent, if we uh, had confidence that he was working even when it seems like everything's going wrong, if we had confidence that God was taking that complicated mess that sin creates and that he's using that mess to create some kind of ordered purpose, if we were confident that nothing enters our lives that he cannot use for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you know what kind of strength that would create in us if we had that kind of confidence in him? And of course, that's not to say that we won't experience seasons of devastation and deep hurt. But if we had that kind of confidence, we wouldn't spiral into despair. We wouldn't abandon the only one who could take even the worst of circumstances and turn them into good. We would not abandon our trust in God's sovereign hand by seeking out answers that may be unknowable. We would not succumb to the very sinful weakness that often complicates life even further. It's that kind of confidence that roots us deeply in trusting in the work of God. The question, though, right, even as I say that, it seems impossible. Where does one get that kind of strength? Because I could just tell us, have more faith. If you're struggling, it's because you don't have enough faith, so suck it up and start trusting him more. And that proposition would just feel like another burden, especially 
when you feel weak. So how do we go about possessing the kind of assurance that God is actually at worst, even in the midst of weakness, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sin? Finally, let's take a look at God redeeming through weakness. An interesting feature of the the narrative arc uh, that we've seen is the way in which God upends our conceptions of how things ought to be done. This has happened over and over again all throughout Genesis. Uh, For instance, since the beginning, God has upended the assumption that uh, the strongest or the oldest or the wisest should be the one through whom he works. Uh, If you remember Abraham and Sarah, they thought themselves wise, uh, and so they attempted to sinfully exploit Hagar in, in order to produce a child who would be Ishmael. But God says, no, I will not use Ishmael and your assumptions of your own wisdom. Instead, Abraham, I'm going to use your elderly wife, Sarah, to bring the child of promise despite your weakness. Fast forward, many assume that Esau, the oldest and the strongest, would carry on the promise line. But God says, no, I'm not going to use the oldest and the strongest. I'm going to use the younger and the weakest to accomplish my purposes. Many would assume that even in our story, that any one of Jacob's older sons would have been a better suitor to carry on uh, the line to save God's people. But God says, no, I'm going to use the spoiled brat through the wicked actions of his brothers to carry on the line and to save my people. This is how God works. And it's not just in Genesis. In in, uh, Deuteronomy 7, we're told that God chose Israel as his people, not because they were numerous, but because they were few. Because they were not strong, but because they were weak. In 1 Corinthians 1, we're told that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God uses the weak, not the strong, because the strong think themselves favored. They think themselves worthy. But those who are weak and recognize that they are weak realize that they need the strong and mighty God to come and redeem them. This is how God always works. And this is no different than at the center of the gospel message. This is no different in how God works when he sends his son to fulfill that which was always promised. Jesus Christ does not come with great strength and prestige to prove that he's the favored one. Instead, he comes with vulnerability and humility and weakness. He becomes the very opposite of what we have seen over and over again all throughout this narrative. You know, unlike Jacob, who lives his life to serve and satisfy himself, Jesus Christ comes to live his life so that he may lay down his life freely for those whom he loves. Unlike Joseph in this story, who arrogantly parades his privilege and riches as the favorite son, Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, the one with all privileges and heavenly riches, lays them down and takes up our poverty and sin. Unlike the brothers who forcibly and violently throw Joseph into a pit of death, Jesus Christ on the cross willingly throws himself into that greater pit of death so that we might ultimately be spared that pit. And unlike all of us, Jesus Christ obeys the law of God perfectly loves the Father above all else, loves others more than himself. We can have confidence to know that God is at work in weakness 
in the circumstances that may not end up making much sense to us, in the midst of a life complicated by sin, we can have confidence that God is near because Jesus Christ, Christ proves the extent to which God is constantly working through weakness. He is redeeming the cosmos through weakness, through the work of Jesus. But here's, the, here's how I'll close and for us to consider. For us to experience the redemption that comes through that perfect life of Jesus in his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, we need to recognize and acknowledge our own weakness and our need for that resurrection power and strength to be given to us. You know, I often talk with people who either believe themselves quite strong and righteous. And if you find yourself to be quite righteous and strong, I have often found that one who finds himself righteous is usually unknowingly incredibly arrogant and self-centered, just thus proving the extent to which they are not righteous. And so my encouragement would be recognize your weakness and turn to Jesus. Of course, I also talk to those who know that they are weak and they are often overcome by their sin or the, the sins of others. If that's you, Again, still, turn to Jesus, the one who knows what it is to experience the sins of others, who knows what it is to come in weakness, but experience his resurrection power and strength that he's extending to you. See, the, the central theme of all of this is that Jesus Christ, when at the center, is the one who proves to us and helps us see the ways in which God is working even in ways that we can't always understand. But we can also have confidence to know that that redemption work that God is accomplishing through the work of Jesus is what will, in the long run, make even the worst of circumstances that we might find ourselves in redeemed. Jesus Christ has come in weakness so that we might experience his strength. So my encouragement would be for all of us, look upon Jesus the one who makes sense of all the brokenness, all the complexities of sin in this world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you, uh, you do see us in our, our brokenness. You see us in our sin. You know uh, even more profoundly the ways that we don't love you like we should. You see all the ways that we uh, don't love others well. You see the ways that we can be self-centered, self-oriented. But Lord, we thank you that despite seeing us in that state, Lord, you do not desire to leave us in that state, but rather you desire to bring redemption and healing and restoration. And that you do that through our Savior, the one who comes in weakness, the one who does what we couldn't, who loves you perfectly, who loves others perfectly, who lives perfectly righteous. You accomplish a great work for him, for those who trust in him. And so I pray that you would help us all to trust in him. Whether we are for the first time putting our trust in him or needing to again be reminded of all the ways that we haven't been trusting in him, Lord, help us to do so. And would that produce in us a confidence to know that you are at work, always at work, even when we don't understand all that you're doing, trusting that you're for our good. Help us by the power of your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.